Hello everyone, and welcome back. Last episode, we began our study of policing and prison systems both within the U.S. and South Asia with a focus particularly on Pakistan. Through this study, we were able to see the similarities in the violence and oppressive natures of policing, as well as its capitalist and imperialist origins. Through this exploration, we were able to form an abolitionist perspective that demands the abolition of the current policing, prison, court, and surveillance systems. However, key to abolition is not just the destruction of an oppressive system, but also the building of supportive systems rooted in collective care. Thus, in this podcast, we will begin to analyze systems that provide an alternative to policing. Broadly known as transformative justice, we will analyze how these forms of justice resist against colonial and capitalist hegemonies, and how they take different forms in the different contexts of the United States, South Asia, and the South Asian diaspora. So, what is transformative justice? I can begin by describing my understanding of it, which comes from a pretty U.S. academic understanding. I've always seen transformative justice as an alternative to punitivism. So, this means that transformative justice is not just an alternative to policing and a means of abolition, but actually a way of being in the world and being in a community. From our study of carceral systems in the last podcast, we began to see practices of punitive culture, which are based on punishing people who have caused harm. This punishment is rooted in the suffering, rather than the rehabilitation or transformation, of the person who has harmed. This suffering is inflicted through our prison, policing, court, surveillance, and other systems. Thus, moving to a transformative justice framework requires an entire dismantling of all those systems to radically change how we relate and interact with each other. Transformative justice demands we create communities of trust and care in which we understand everyone has the capacity to harm and everyone has the ability to transform after causing harm. This understanding is also premised on the idea we learned in the last podcast that proved that what we consider as criminal and punishable behavior is heavily embedded in the systems of racism, colonialism, and capitalism, with certain marginalized groups, particularly Black people in the United States, being forced into systems of violence that only cause more harm. One of my favorite writers, Adrienne Marie Brown, the author of the books We Will Not Cancel Us and Pleasure Activism, explains this really well. She says... So when I'm trying to explain transformative justice to people, I usually back away from, I don't go straight at, okay, this is transformative justice. I usually actually go back to punitive justice. I start out with like what we're used to and what we've been socialized into is punitive justice. And and then I ask people, if I'm in a room full of people, even in you know a room full of friends, I'll be like, how many of you... Um, grew up in an experience where you were punished when harm happened. And I give examples. You were expelled, you were put in detention, you are suspension, you are put on timeout. But the main move was you're removed from community in some way because you've done harm. And people are like, oh, yeah, you know, everyone either has that experience or they were part of spaces where they saw that experience. And then I'm like, you know, we age, we grow that up so that then you go into prison or you get the death penalty or you get canceled from your community, right? That same, it's the same process. So we live in this, that's what we're swimming in. And then I talk about restorative justice as a steps in the right direction, right? It's like harm has happened. How do we restore ourselves back to that relationship that existed before the harm happened? So I'm like, someone stole your purse. You get an apology. They do some community service. Hopefully we've returned to like, where we were. Um, But for me, I always say that doesn't go far enough because if the original conditions were unjust, then returning to those original conditions is not actually justice, right? You're just going to have someone who's like, great, now I returned everything to you. I still don't have anything and I'm still hungry and I still need something. Um, So 
uh, I'm like, so we need to go further. So to me, transformative justice, the first aspect of it is that it goes all the way down to the root system of the harm and says, how do we change, heal, transform, pull this up? What do we need to do at the root system so that this harm is no longer possible? Like what we're trying to do is stop this harm from ever being possible again. And then how do we understand that the state is so committed to punitive justice, so the state is not gonna be able to engage in transformative justice with us. So we don't go to the state to do this kind of deep work. Um, and then how do we turn towards each other to hold this space? And in that turning to each other, we have to say, I believe you can transform. What I especially love about this clip is Brown's distinctions between restorative justice and transformative justice. I think these terms have been used interchangeably, but it is really important to pull out the differences here. Restorative justice attempts to restore a relationship after harm has occurred. However, transformative justice moves beyond restoration and actually requires the transformation of the relationship to understand why the harm occurred in the first place and how we can work on eliminating the root of this harm to prevent the harm from continuing. This is why I will be pushing that we focus on the alternative of transformative justice over restorative justice in this podcast. I think to better understand transformative justice, we may need something more practical. I know when I first began learning about it, I was pushed into a lot of language about changing the world and abstract concepts of punitivism that I didn't fully understand. So I'm going to provide a definition from two organizations dedicated towards transformative justice. Philly Stands Up is an organization that practices transformative justice to confront sexual assault through community accountability. They state that, and I quote, Transformative justice is a way of practicing alternative justice that acknowledges individual experiences and identities and works to actively resist the state's criminal injustice system. Transformative justice recognizes that oppression is at the root of all forms of harm, abuse, and assault. As a practice, it therefore aims to address and confront those oppressions on all levels and treats this concept as an integral part to accountability and healing." End quote. Another definition is given by Generation 5, which is an organization that uses transformative justice frameworks to respond to and prevent child sexual abuse and other forms of violence. They say, and I quote, Transformative justice is a liberatory approach to violence, which seeks safety and accountability without relying on alienation, punishment, or state or systemic violence, including incarceration or policing, end quote. To these ends, Generation 5 also provides three core beliefs of transformative justice, which I will quote below. One, individual justice and collective liberation are equally important, mutually supportive, and fundamentally intertwined. The achievement of one is impossible without the achievement of the other. Two, the conditions that allow violence to occur must be transformed in order to achieve justice in individual instances of violence. Therefore, transformative justice is both a liberating politic and an approach for securing justice. And three, state and systemic responses to violence, including the criminal legal system and child welfare agencies, not only fail to advance individual and collective justice, but also condone and perpetuate cycles of violence. End quote. I think these principles give us something more substantive to think about and to practice. They are a bit less abstract and push us to think about how we can attempt to embody them in our life. But still, I know the idea of transformative justice can seem far-fetched. So I think Mia Mingus, another one of my favorite writers who focuses on disability justice, provides some really interesting ways for us to think about how we embody transformative justice in our everyday lives. Okay, this is something that I love to talk about. Um, so this is some examples of the small things when I think about that are things like best friends working out conflict between each other instead of turning away from each other. Because the thing about 
all of this is that if we're not going to use prisons and the police, for example, or if we're not going to use the criminal legal system, if we're not going to use the foster system, then it's it's us who's going to have to be responding to these things. And if, you know, I always say this, forget violence, harm, and abuse. We don't even, we're not even good at handling conflict or misunderstandings well. And so I feel like if we can start there rather than like leapfrogging that and then being like, why don't these responses to these big things work? And so when I talk about the small things, I mean like, you know, a lot of times in our political work, really great work falls apart, not because of outside forces. Many times they do fall apart because of outside forces, but also they fall apart oftentimes because of the internal dynamics, because people don't know how to handle basic conflict or because something that started off at a very low scale, like if we think about violence on a scale of like one to 10, 10 being like the worst and most severe, things that started off as like a one or a two escalate into like a seven or an eight. And you're like, how did this happen? Or a five and a six. So when I think about small things, I think about that, like people who, again, are tending to the little cuts. So friends who are able to work out conflict, um, when you're able to have generative conflict with maybe like your partner, for example, people who are making qual and forming and building and cultivating quality relationships with their neighbors or able to work out conflict with their neighbors in a ways that actually deepen that relationship. Um, all of those types of little things to me, people who are investing with each other and in their skill sets and building their capacities. To me, these are all part of the things that not only are small, they may not even be harm yet, but they're small forms of maybe vile, um, com sorry, conflict maybe. Um, but also I think that they are often the like you said, like the building blocks and their training ground that we can practice a lot of these skills in. I love her approach to understanding transformative justice through a very personal connection. One way I try to make transformative justice feel more practical to me is through an example that's quite close to home, especially for members of South Asian communities, and that is our families. When we think of the people we are taught to allow ourselves to be the most vulnerable and the safest around, I think many of us think of our families. We are told our families are the only ones that will love us unconditionally and forgive us endlessly. We are taught that our families, through their love and care for us, will be the ones we hold dearest to ourselves. Yet, I think as we grow older, we learn that the concept of biological family is immensely limiting. We think of our friends, our mentors, our partners, and we realize that the Euro-American biologically determinate labels of family are not enough to encompass the meaningful relationships we hold. Sometimes, I think these labels can even become limiting by allowing people to hold the family as sacred and therefore other relationships as open to exploitation. Yet, I think our families give us an example of a community in which care is centered. It is hard to imagine a world where everyone practices care in all that they do. But families, whether they are biological, chosen, or something in between, show us that this is possible. When we think of the abolition of the carceral system and the use of transformative justice, I think many of us find it difficult to imagine such a practice. But when we look to our families, we see that we have been practicing this form of justice our entire lives. This sense of care, encouragement, vulnerability, and prioritization of healing comes naturally, without us even realizing it, showing that justice rooted in care is not only possible, but that it already exists. For example, when you think of the arguments you had with your siblings growing up, which I had many of as I have three older siblings, how did you solve them? Did you lock them away? Did you remove them from the family for months to years? Did you deem them as unforgivable? Now, I've got to be honest, I, and I'm sure 
Many others definitely had my fair share of internalized punitivism, even at this very young age, especially due to the ways punitivism has become central in your American parental relationships. Yet, I think deeper within me, I knew very simply that I was hurt and that I didn't want to be hurt anymore. We've been told that the solution to this is to push the other person out, to hurt them, but we know that even this does not make us hurt any less. For example, do you ever remember your siblings getting in trouble because you told on them? There's always a twinge of guilt in this, because seeing someone you care about being hurt is never a good feeling. Violence inflicted onto someone who harmed you does not fix the harm. Rather, it creates even more violence. So, when I think about how we actually solved our issues and repaired our relationships, I think of our vulnerability and our trust. I think of us sobbing our eyes out and explaining how we were hurt. Although this process was messy and uncomfortable, this is how we were able to find ways to repair our relationship. And I think that this is a really practical pathway of thinking about transformative justice for a lot of us. But in this example, I think it is crucial to bring up the role of trust. Systems of racism, imperialism, and capitalism have forced us into relationships in which we cannot trust one another. And rightfully so, I understand why we are this way. Without trust, though, there is no motivation to care, and there is no space for vulnerability. So I think this brings me to two points, which were both reflected by Adrienne Marie Brown and Generation 5. One, that justice cannot happen through systems that are inherently violent, as trust and care are impossible in these contexts. Transformative justice cannot work through the state. It has to be rooted into communities, these even bigger families, where trust exists and the desire to care and love exist. And two, that in order for transformative justice to work at a larger collective level, we must also commit to building a world in which we want to build care and trust rather than fear and isolation. For me, I think much of this work is embodied through my understanding of activism and organizing. Building a more caring world requires us to fight for abolition and fight for justice for all marginalized folks. But building a more caring world also requires us, like Miaminga says, to take care of our neighbors. Thus, although the concept of transformative justice may sound new or foreign, I think it is important to remember that we have been doing this work for centuries. I think this is explained very well again through Adrienne Marie Brown when she talks about pleasure activism. Part of being a survivor myself and part of being in communities with survivors is recognizing that um, even when we get to good, even when we're like, okay, I'm not in total trauma land, there's still a lot of our lives that are like, I have to earn pleasure, I have to earn rest, I have to do more for my community to get something good for myself. That's to me the unnatural mythologies of capitalism. That's what we have bought into together is like, I have to earn education, I have to earn home. I have to earn food? Like, no, like, I'm a part of a community. That should all be part of what I receive. I also think pleasure is, to me, at the same level as those things. So, like, when I'm like, oh, what do I need to survive? And Octavia, you know, showed that over and over again. Octavia Butler, in her novels and her work, it's like, what do we actually need to survive? It's not enough to just have food if we're miserable and shelter if we're totally hating each other. There's something else. And almost every text that she has, her characters, who are surviving apocalypse, have lovers. They have symbiotic communities that are giving and taking care of each other. Um, I think we're the same way, that we have to be doing that as a part of what survival even means. And how that connects to political work for me is there's this quote from Grace Lee Boggs, who was one of my mentors, that's transform yourself to transform the world. That every oppression, all these systems, they are constructed inside of us. And when we, when we often, when we start our work, when we get politicized, we're like, oh, the best 
that people are like over over here and we you know learn we learn our organizing by learning like who can we identify and point to as the causers of harm and I love what Grace says is like this is our, our potential for some radical responsibility is like those front lines are inside of us and so again it ties in I'm like oh if the front line is inside of me for pleasure like if I want all black women to be able to access pleasure um, it really matters that I'm experiencing pleasure. And actually that's been an interesting thing as I've been touring this book is I keep showing up to events and I'm just like, I'm in a deeply, fully satisfied life and it shows and you can feel it. And peep, that's the reflection I keep getting back from people. It's like, wow, it's just amazing to be a brown and black woman and like free about her feelings and like talks about orgasm and stuff, you know? To me, that is a huge portion now of my political work is to be a satisfied black woman for people to see that, that I'm like, yes, I get angry, yes, I'm sad, yes, I feel the full range of emotion, but fundamentally, when you ask me, I'm good. I'm good because I made myself good. I made, I'm good because I found the right community to be around me, because I've somehow dodged the bullet of like getting my life tied in with some patriarchal like downfall of man. <laughs> like I'm just like, I'm good, right? I'm happy. And I feel like a lot of people need to witness that um, and, and be that in their own communities. Um, and I do, I like the idea of echo chambers of transformation, right? That it's like, if mine sets off yours, just like mine was set off by someone else, just like someone else helped her. And like, I love that idea that it's like, we just keep popping it off until it becomes the most compelling force. Now, I know last episode, we briefly mentioned another means of achieving abolition and revolution through the work of Arundhati Roy and Kwame Ture, and that was through the use of violence. And I think that this is where it is important to also analyze the tensions here. How can we argue for a world rooted in care when we pursue this world through violence? Firstly, I think it is important to understand the different definitions of violence, both in the United States, in South Asia, and in the South Asian diaspora. Much like transformative justice and abolition, violence also takes up its own definition. What we understand as violence under capitalism is the destruction of property and the destruction of people that make a labor force. But what we understand as violence under transformative justice is pretty different. We understand violence as structural and as the harm of people, not of property. Secondly, I think it is also important to understand that while we begin to move into practices of transformative justice, we still exist in a world that does not allow us to do so fully. In fact, we even get punished and experience violence more if we do not submit to systems of punitivism. Therefore, I think it is really important to leave space for marginalized folks to continue doing the work of revolution while also surviving within this system that is meant quite literally to defeat us. I think we could go more in depth with this analysis, but that could take us hours. So I say this quickly to emphasize that both of these understandings of a so-called violent revolution and of a world rooted in transformative care are not by any means mutually exclusive, as we may originally assume. So this, along with the words of Brown, reminds us again that this world has existed before and is actually very natural to us. What is not natural is a punitive system of incarceration, policing, and surveillance. In order to really think deeply about this, I return to my identity as someone in the South Asian diaspora. If transformative justice really is natural, Shouldn't I be able to find it in my own home? Originally, this question bothered me because it seemed that no matter how hard I looked, I could not find the Mia Minguses and the Adrian Marie Browns of Pakistan. But this is actually a reflection of my own internalized colonialism and elitism rather than evidence against this claim. 
In actuality, transformative justice is so integral and natural that it often isn't even given that label. I have to remind myself now, as always, that the language we use, especially in white academic spaces, is still that of the colonizers, and is not one that can be imprinted onto a different community in different contexts, both within the U.S. and in Pakistan. One of the practices that I was able to come across that was documented was the practice of jarga. A lot of the work I was able to find on documenting this was done by a man named Eli Gohar, who worked on finding the connections between jarga and concepts of restorative justice, and then later created the organization Just Peace International, whose mission is to facilitate and promote the adaptation of new strategies to deal with the issues of conflict that will help individuals and organizations to identify the conflicts and see them as an opportunity to remove and prevent injustices at the roots of relationships and structures through a deliberate focus on areas of conflict transformation, including the fundamentals of peacebuilding, worldviews, cross-cultural education, restorative justice, and the spirit roots of peacebuilding. And this organization does most of its work through the context of Pakistan. Anyways, in his piece, Towards Understanding Pakhtun Jirga, Ali Gohar and his co-author Hassan Yusufzai describe the indigenous practice of Jirga. They state, and I quote, The institution of Jirga is practiced mainly in the Pashto-speaking areas of northwestern and western Pakistan and mainframe Afghanistan. The jirga is responsible for maintaining order in every social frame of life, from national and international affairs to individual as well as collective. The operation of jirga involves a public session where male members of the community gather to deliberate upon an important issue concerning the whole community. There is very little hierarchy evident in its structure. Sitting in a circle, jirga has no president, no secretary, and no convener. There are no hierarchical positions and required statuses of the participants. All are equal and everyone has the right to speak and argue. Although, regard for the elders is always there without any authoritarianism or privileged rights attached to it. In addition, there is no specific quorum for this kind of assembly. It is expected that the elder members of the jirga will see that all the stakeholders are duly represented and comments are publicly placed for those missing from the session. People occupy space at random. Those more active in public life in the front and those less visible or concerned in public life are at the back. The jirga system ensures maximum participation of the participants during deliberation of a specific issue as everyone has a right to speak. An issue is examined from point to point till all aspects of the issue are fairly deliberated upon. All concerns heard and a transparent and uniform understanding of the issue is agreed upon. Jirga, in its current form, is not a government or a ruling body. It is not a purely legislative body, nor is it a judicial entity. We see jirga as a set of processes with similar purposes as many well-known social practices such as peacebuilding and development, end quote. These are the basics of how jirga works logistically, but to fully understand this system, there are also so many more intricacies that we cannot fully explore in this podcast. Also, there is a lot of Islamic influence that is embodied in these jirgas, Gohar explains three of these Islamic characteristics as sabr, which is patience, shukr, which is thankfulness to God, and ijaz, which is humility and selflessness. It may be difficult for us to fully understand how this system works, but what I really want to highlight is how this system creates an alternative to institutions of policing based on community care and accountability. Rather than isolating people who have caused harm, the system allows them to remain within their community as they work towards repairing the harm they caused. Furthermore, this allows justice to be accessible by all within the community, regardless of their social class or financial status. I know some of us may be hesitant about this system, especially because of the patriarchal aspects, which I think it's important to mention that many have found evidence that Durga's historically included women. 
But I also think it is really important that we, as people who live and experience the world in an entirely different context, do not apply our own judgments on how the system works. Gohar warns us of this, saying, in quotes, Jirga operates within a context. Outside of that context, Jirga would be impossible. The context of Jirga is based on a shared understanding of history, values, traditions, culture, local environment, and above all, the Pashto language. These local practices are more properly known as the Bakhtunwali, the code of Bakhtun life. I think this brings us right back to some of the principles we learned from Mon M in our previous podcasts, which demand that we allow communities to self-determine how conflicts and harm can be best resolved. Transformative justice is not a one-size-fits-all solution that we can copy and paste onto different communities with different contexts. Rather, transformative justice must be embedded within the communities it works in. This also brings us back to another principle we have learned, and it is that none of this work we are doing is new. Rather, these ideas of conflict and harm resolution have existed for hundreds of years. The practice of the jarga pre-exists any language of transformative justice, and this is just one practice. There are so many more examples of transformative justice that we can pull from when thinking about our South Asian and South Asian diasporic communities. Now that we have learned a little bit about transformative justice in South Asia and in the U.S., let's think about how we can combine the two in our framework as members of the diaspora. Before I give my thoughts, I want to talk a little bit about one of the examples I've already found, which is Saki. According to their website, Saki for South Asian Women exists to represent the South Asian diaspora in a survivor-led movement for gender justice and to honor the collective and inherent power of all survivors of violence. More recently, this organization has begun to explore what it could look like if they pursued a transformative justice framework. Much of my understanding of this has come through the work of Sonia Munshi, Bhavna Nancharla, and Tuloma Jay Singh at the University of Miami and Sagara Kagami at Pamana College. Munshi, Nancharla, and Jay Singh worked with Saki to identify how the organization could move forward. When they arrived, they stated that Saki was in between two different approaches, and I quote, One, a culturally specific service model that generally aligns with the mainstream anti-violence models, which relies heavily on the criminal legal system and other systemic interventions to respond to domestic violence, but with a focus on making them more accessible, for example, through language access or know your rights education. And the other approach, too, a transformative justice approach which envisions and builds responses to domestic violence outside of state engagement and punitive strategies, based in communities instead of professional experts, and concerned with increasing safety and well-being for survivors, people who cause harm, and communities overall, end quote. They decided to move towards the transformative justice approach. However, there were some issues and tensions that arose when they attempted this path. One of these is documented as, and I quote, How does Saki strike a balance between providing services to immigrant women whose struggles for everyday survival often require them to interface with the criminal legal system and offering an approach that eschews systemic solutions? At the heart of this conflict is the question of what role community can play in this balance. Broadly generalizing, in the mainstream anti-violence approach, communities are at worst a part of the domestic violence problem or at best, allies in enabling access to resources provided by an entity that exists outside of the community, for example, the legal system. Many organizations like Saki have a similar analysis of community, as it was the lack of community attention to domestic violence that led to their organizational founding in the first place. 
community has generally been seen as a barrier rather than a resource. Transformative justice, on the other hand, re-envisions the scope and possibility of community as both a space and active agent for addressing violence within itself. Saki's ability to re-envision beyond state-based interventions rises from an active re-examination of how community might play a greater role in resourcing survivors. I think this tension is so beautifully worded and something that many of us as South Asian Americans, especially South Asian American women, can relate to. When we have faced trauma and harm by our community, how do we turn back to them for support? I think this collective harm is addressed less in Euro-American frameworks of transformative justice, but much more in the South Asian and diasporic contexts. For example, in the Jarga, we saw complete trust within the community to hold harm doers accountable and provide justice without inflicting even more violence. Now, in this diasporic context, it seems we must also work within the tensions of South Asian collectivism and American individualism. I say this while acknowledging the harm and overgeneralization, but also accounting for the very substantive results of colonialism and capitalism that have created such idealizations of individuality. So, within the space of complicated tensions, how did Saki adapt? Munchi, Nanchala, and Jaya Singh moved Saki towards a framework more in line with transformative justice through the following interventions. In the short term, they wanted to focus on obtaining more information from survivors and community members about how and where communities are already providing support to survivors. The longer-term strategy that this serves is to build community capacity to respond to violence by both de-individualizing violence and decentering Saki's role as a primary responder to a facilitator of community-based interventions. This is the shift from community education that informs the community of Saki as a resource to one that informs and in fact expects the community to be active in supporting survivors of violence directly. Some other steps they included are... Quote, make adjustments to the intake form to ask survivors who contact Saki about ways they have accessed or could access community for support. When communicating with survivors, encourage them to identify individuals within their communities who can support them and create space for those supporters to be part of resourcing processes that Saki holds. Strengthen the building of social and community networks within support group spaces by serving as a facilitator for those connections. Incorporate more political education conversations and support group spaces to de-individualize violence by building connections at the structural level and by making political structures visible. Hold focus groups in community spaces to reflect on how individuals approach communities for support around intimate partner violence and in order to identify effective strategies that communities may already be using to address violence without involving the state. Train community members who are already involved in supporting survivors in their communities and integrate political education about the larger context of anti-violence work, including policies in the United States. A starting point here could be with those people who call Saki on behalf of survivors who are experiencing violence. Being able to witness how Saki is molding into an organization that was previously rooted in our carceral system to a framework of transformative justice is incredibly interesting and encouraging. Furthermore, as a South Asian diasporic organization, it holds a very different experience of transformative justice through different values of collectivism and pre-existing marginalization as a woman-centered and South Asian-centered organization. Now, I'm sure you may be a bit confused as to why I've highlighted all these very different examples. My main hope in doing this is to show that transformative justice is a complicated practice that takes different forms in different contexts. In this way, the work of transformative justice is nothing new. 
Although new tensions constantly arise and new systems get in the way, our ideals of transformative justice have existed before them and will continue to exist after them. Initially, when working on this podcast, I had planned to compare and contrast the different applications of transformative justice to see how they inform each other or look different, which I still believe I did to a degree, but I was expecting to come up with some kind of conclusion or solution of how South Asians in the diaspora could practice transformative justice. But I now want to be careful that this is not the main purpose of my work. In efforts to support community self-determination and an understanding of my own positionality, I do not think it is fair for me to compare communities and practices in ways that may be hierarchical or assume Euro-American societal ideals or provide some sort of band-aid solution, and this includes in the South Asian diasporic context, which is very diverse. Rather, I think the point of these podcasts, and where I find the most power in this work, is in highlighting that these practices of transformative justice exist everywhere, and have existed for as long as we know. Particularly, for other members of the South Asian diaspora, I want to share the words of one of my friends and mentors, which is, we have all that we need. We, in our current position, hold the great privilege of connecting practices, culture, and ideas across borders. We are able to access and witness these theoretical links and use them to inform our own organizing. It is this reason that this podcast is entitled Barva, which means care, because it is Barva for our homelands and our ancestors that allows us to believe in an alternative world with different practices. It is care for our current communities and the other marginalized communities we are in solidarity with that pushes us to fight for abolition and transformative justice. And fundamentally, it is through this centering of care that we can revolutionize.